welcome back. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I know we did. Um, the band on gluttony is now over. And so uh, the reality of a lot of eating, we got to get that back under control, don't we? And so been great. We've had our family and I have my family here today. And I sat last night and I was greatly moved by God's blessing on my life. And I'm sure you've probably felt the same that uh, family is so important, isn't it, East Point? Our biological families are certainly important. So is the spiritual family as we've been learning, as we come together. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 10. As you know, the book of Acts is all about the spread and the advancement of the gospel, and it unfolds for us God's plan to evangelize the world. So we're going verse by verse, and what we found is that we've seen thousands of Jews come to faith. Remember when that happened? It was a Pentecost, right? And then multitudes of Samaritans in both Judea and Samaria were converted. Now, a major theme then that runs all the way through the book of Acts and that parallels the gospel, especially in the first 11 chapters, is the sin of prejudice, the sin of pride. And I think we're all prone to it at some level or another, aren't we? This is not one of those things we like to really talk about. We might struggle with ethnic pride, the skin color. Some of us might struggle with that. There's economic pride where the rich look down on the poor and the poor resent the rich. That happens. There's the prejudice of social status where those who hold positions of power hold it over those who don't and those who don't resent the ones that do. There's also the pride of gender where men can be chauvinists and women can be feminists. There's educational bigotry, right? Those who have higher education can feel superior to those who don't have a higher education and those who don't have it feel inferior. And so I probably only touched on a few of these things, but we're prone to prejudice. We're prone to bigotry, and it's rooted deeply in the idea of pride. However, when the sin of prejudice shows up, it grieves the heart of God, doesn't it? We know, for example, the first sin listed in Proverbs 16 through 19 that describes what God hates, leading that that list is haughty eyes. Pride. In John 17, 21, Jesus prayed that we would all be one as he and the Father are one. And so that's the passion and heart of God. So humility then in oneness and unity is certainly important to God. As we've noted before, all the way through our study of Acts, the Jews had a real problem with pride. And you remember that it was rooted in what? It was rooted in the fact that they were God's chosen people, only ethnic group that was ever chosen by God. He chose the Jews to be his people. And because of that, the Jews felt superior to all the other people groups on the earth. They were the original elitists. And we might even say that they were the original racists. Orthodox Jews would have nothing to do with outsiders. Remember that they despised the Samaritans. Remember what they called them? They called them half-breeds. Because some of the Jewish people intermarried with Gentile people, and therefore they were looked down upon. What that created then, because God wanted them to be a separate people, it created idolatry, and they fell into false religion. 
It's important who we marry, whether we continue on with legitimate worship. But the Jews' hatred for the Samaritans paled in in comparison to their feelings towards the Gentiles. They called Gentiles dogs. Can you imagine using that kind of vocabulary today? Not domestic dogs. These were, these were rabid scavengers, and they, so they were always shooed away because they were bothering people. The Jews considered the Gentiles pretty much unclean. In fact, they wouldn't socialize with a Gentile at all. They wouldn't go in their homes, and they certainly wouldn't eat with them. If they traveled through Gentile country, they'd have to wash their feet or dust or, or uh, shake the dust off their feet when they went back into Israel. If they bought any Gentile products, they would have to be purified. And so in short then, the Jews considered the Gentiles to be the scum of the earth. This is where Christianity started. And it's not really changed today. Now this was a huge problem because God chose the Jews to be missionaries to the Gentiles. That was their primary task. They were given the covenants, they were given the promises, and they were to take the gospel to the world. So for the gospel to advance then, their prejudice had to be dealt with. And the apostles in particular had to learn that salvation was for every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. But it was so ingrained in them that it took a work of God to change it. We struggle with all kinds of prejudice today. There's commercials on TV, if you've noticed, about hatred toward the Jews, hatred towards LBGTQ, hatred towards Asian people. And so the challenge is to not hate, but love. And we thought we had that somewhat solved in America, didn't we? Slavery went away. The treatment of of black people, it it, it ceased to be what it was. But the reality is this. That's never going to go away. Apart from the transforming message of the gospel. That's the only way it's ever going to really change. Oh, laws can suppress it. And laws do suppress sin, but it doesn't deal with sin. It just brings consequences. So the barriers then had somewhat already been reversed by the acceptance of the Samaritans, if you remember that. They went out and they evangelized the Samaritans. But as far as the Gentiles go, there was a little tiny small crack in the wall that had already been made by the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. Remember that? He was a Gentile. The the issue was, though, that he didn't stay. He was heading back to his hometown. So there was no mixing of a Gentile with the Jews at that point. So in God's providence then, in the advancement of the gospel, the time had come to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And as we come to chapter 10, Peter continues to be the dominant apostle. And Peter himself is, is faced with a very real challenge. He had to overcome a lifetime of ingrained bigotry towards the Gentiles. So Peter's prominent here. He's been prominent in the past. We saw a little glimpse of the the Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. 
But what Peter really needed was a sanctifying process that the God, that God would bring about in his heart. God had been doing that and he continues to do it in our text. We get little subtle hints of how God works. And by the way, God works in steps. If you'll notice in your own life, these particular sins that we're faced with, that we struggle with, don't go away immediately. A lot of times we struggle with them throughout life. You remember back in chapter 9 that Peter raised Tabitha or Dorcas. Remember, he raised her from the dead. Do you remember that story? If you remember, her name meant gazelle. And gazelles just happened to be a clean animal that the dietary laws allowed to be eaten. Now, why is that significant? I don't know if the Holy Spirit had that to intend for that or not, but I see the fact that that's interesting because Peter's going to get a lesson on clean and unclean foods. So he happened to be dealing with a lady by the name of gazelle that was a clean food. But certainly in chapter 9 then, We had Peter staying many days with the home of a tanner named Simon. Now, remember that tanning was a despised trade in the Jewish economy because they dealt with dead uh, flesh of dead animals, which was forbidden by the law. So they wouldn't they wouldn't come near a tanner. As a matter of fact, they had to have their homes um, a certain distance from this from the main city. And by the way, there was a smell to that. And that's one of the reasons that they weren't allowed to build their homes close to everybody else. But no Orthodox Jew would would even entertain the idea of staying with a tanner. But Peter did. So we're beginning to see Peter change. Isn't that wonderful? And so the lesson that we see is how God changes us. And bigotry and prejudice has to be removed by a work of God because the heart is naturally bent toward pride. So there's one more prejudice that Peter had to overcome, and that was his bias against Gentiles. I'm excited to teach this passage because we're going to learn some really new things. By the way, this is part one of maybe a three-part series. We'll see how it goes. This is a long text that goes into chapter 11, and there's a lot of really fascinating realities to this text, and we want to make sure that we plumb the depths of that. So the main point of our passage is one that we've seen before. It's been the theme of every single personal evangelistic scene. We saw it with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and then we saw it with Ananias, with Saul, and now we see it again with Peter and Cornelius. The overarching theme in every single case is that God sovereignly orchestrates salvation. That's not new for us, but we've seen that pattern every time an individual gets saved. So just like in the previous examples, we see God sovereignly doing two things. He's preparing Peter and he's preparing Cornelius. And he's going to bring them together for what reason? For the sake of the gospel. This is so encouraging for those who desire to give the gospel to people and certainly to bring someone to saving faith. It requires God on his part to prepare both the messenger, who is Peter, and the receiver of that message, who is Cornelius. And here's the beautiful thing that we're going to see in the next few weeks. 
That timing is perfect. We have talked so often about ministry or missionary strategy. And we're developing a strategy in Belize. But in the end, we wouldn't have a clue who really to give the gospel to who would be saved. And so we're to give the gospel to everybody, right? And the gospel that we give to everybody is a legitimate offer, right? Otherwise, we're commanded to give a lie. So keep that in mind as we walk walk through this text. So in his perfect timing, then, he's causing these two men's paths to cross in order for Cornelius to come to saving faith. So the first movement we see, then, is that God prepared Cornelius. We see that in verses 1 through 8. And he introduces us to him in verses 1 and 2. And it reads, Now there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So notice that we're introduced to a man. This man was at Caesarea. His name is Cornelius. Caesarea, by the way, was an ancient port city on the Mediterranean coast, and it was almost entirely Gentile territory. Now, we have to ask ourselves this question. Out of all the Gentiles in Caesarea, why Cornelius? Why him? At first, he might seem kind of random, just some Gentile in a Gentile city, a city filled with Gentiles, but suddenly we have a man named Cornelius. Was he random? No, he wasn't, he wasn't random. He wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't arbitrary in God's eyes. He was no more arbitrary than the Ethiopian eunuch or Saul. And what the context shows is that God is going to bring Cornelius to faith in Christ. We can relax with bringing people to saving faith because God has a plan for that. And by the way, in case you have any doubts about God's sovereignty over salvation, Acts 13.48 should settle it for all of us. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had, I'm sorry, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word appointed here is an important word. It's a military term meaning to assign. It means to determine something or to set something in place. And it's in the passive voice, which means that those who believe do so as a result of God's gracious appointment. In other words, since God appoints them, they will believe. These are the sheep that the father gives to the son as a gift. They're the father's first, and he gives them to his son. And his son dies for them. And the Holy Spirit draws them. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that the elect are forced to believe apart from their will. It's not what that means. Those who are appointed come willingly. 
but they come by the merciful power of God's love. Do you get that? They come because they're enabled to come. God draws us from the point of no interest to the point of some interest, then to the point of greater interest, and finally to the point of saving faith. So God has this beautiful plan that we can just relax with. Are we to give the gospel? Are you too full of food to answer? Yes, right? Does the gospel matter? Must they express saving faith? Can we cause that? You got it. So Cornelius then is being led to faith, and Luke tells us that he was a centurion of an Italian cohort. Now, centurions were military officers that commanded about 100 men. If we did a, re- a little search on, um, on centurions throughout the New Testament, we would find that they were men of merit. They were men of courage, men of stability, of faithfulness and strength of mind. But even more remarkable than his military prominence was his religious devotion. Notice what it says about him. Four things. He was devout, which means that he was devoted to God. He was also generous. It says that he gave many alms or gave money to the Jewish people. And he also prayed to God continually. But I want you to notice the last one. He feared God. This isn't a God, it is the God. In the original Greek, there's a definite article, so he prayed and feared the God, the true God of Israel. So here you have a man that, that's reverent. He's affectionate toward God. He's affectionate towards God's people. He prays, he gives, he does all the things that we would expect. And what we find here with Cornelius is that there's a category of devout religious people in Acts who are called God-fearers. And they're mentioned a number of times throughout Acts. I'm just going to show you three verses here. In Acts 13, 16, says that Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Notice the distinction of Israel and then those who fear God, they're the Gentiles. And Paul here is in an evangelistic setting saying, listen to what I'm about to say. Listen to the gospel. In Acts 17, 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Again, notice Jews first, and they're distinct from the Gentiles. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So he's speaking again to a large group of people that included Jews and also God-fearing Gentiles. Acts 13, 26, the last verse here. Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, that's the Jews, and those among you who fear God. That's the Gentiles. Now watch what he says. To us, the message of salvation has been sent. So these God-fearers which is a category of people, were Gentile pagans who attached themselves in various degrees to Judaism without becoming full proselytes. And and the difference was they weren't circumcised. And because of that, they were not really accepted by the Jews because they were considered ritually unclean. 
Now, you would think from Luke's description here that Cornelius was a believer. And some commentaries say that they believe that he was a believer in Christ. But he wasn't a believer. There's a number of reasons why that's the case. It would destroy the outline that the Lord established back in 1.8 that the gospel was to go to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. We are at that stage of the Gentiles receiving the gospel. It wouldn't make sense for Cornelius to be a believer. He was similar to the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd been searching for God. He had a devotion to God, a desire to find God, but he hadn't yet come to faith in Christ. How can we be sure of this? Well, we know it from Acts 11, 13, and 14. And he, that's Cornelius, reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying. Now, at this point, Peter quotes the words of the angel. Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. This is what the angel told Cornelius. And he will speak words to you by which what? You will be saved, you and all your household. So the angel then, by a revelation of God, told Cornelius that he and his household are going to hear the words of Peter. Therefore, send for Peter and have him come so that you can hear the gospel and be saved. So at the beginning of this scene then, Cornelius was devoted to God, and yet he hadn't yet heard the gospel of truth. And I was thinking about this. I believe that many churchgoers fall into this category of God-fearers. There's a group of people out there that are very moral, very religious. They're committed to a denomination or they're committed to some sort of church. They're devoted to God. They're seen praying, they give money, and yet they have no personal relationship with Christ. This is a warning all the way through Scripture. They're like the man in Matthew 7 who called Jesus Lord, Lord. And if you remember, he prophesied in the name of Christ. He cast out demons and performed miracles. Do you remember what the Lord told him at the end of all his his, uh, works? The Lord said, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. In other words, depart from me. You are religious and you are involved in ministry somehow, but your life hadn't ever really changed. You were the same. So there's a group of people then that attach themselves to some religious organization and they have an affection for God and they're involved and they seem sincere Cornelius had these wonderful traits, but none of them could save his soul from hell. Remember this, friends, that it's faith in Christ alone, not devotion, no matter how sincere that devotion might be, that saves souls. Over and over and over again, we're warned about false conversion. We're warned about those who are deceived in thinking that they're in the kingdom, but their lives show no evidence of that. Remember the sorcerer, he was a believing unbeliever. And Peter pointed that out to him. It's a little different here because Cornelius is legitimately seeking after God. That's a category that we have to recognize. 
One more insight into Cornelius. I think we could say that from the parable of the soils, his heart was a good soil. The seed was about to be cast, and we're going to find that it's going to take root, and it's going to yield a crop. Now, here's what I want you to see. God-fearers who truly are seeking after God by the grace of God, by the power of God, receive a certain amount of light that they embrace. And in those cases, like what we're going to see here with Cornelius, God is going to provide more light. Now watch this. This is God leading somebody to conversion. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. Now the ninth hour of prayer was three o'clock in the afternoon, the third time of the day that the Jews prayed. They prayed in the morning, they prayed at noon, and they prayed in the afternoon. So Cornelius is following the Jewish prescription of prayer. And while he was praying, he saw an angel of the Lord in a vision. This is not Jesus Christ. It's not the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament, but it's an angel. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's an angel. It's a messenger of God. Nevertheless, it's God speaking then to Cornelius. And once he appeared, he only said one thing, Cornelius. That was alarming. Look at verse 4. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So once the angel appeared then, Cornelius stared at him, which is probably what we would do if an angel would show up in here. We would gaze continually at them. But he was terrified. And we'd be terrified too if an angel suddenly showed up and called us by name. And he responded by asking, well, what do you want? Logical question. I want you to notice, though, how the angel answered his question. He said, your prayers and alms, that's giving, in case you don't know that, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, listen to this. This is interesting. Because it shows that God sometimes accepts the worship of unbelievers. Now, that may blow your mind, may blow our little category that we've created. And I always thought, well, God never answers a, a prayer of an unbeliever, but when you think about conversion, he's always answering prayers of unconverted. You're, you're an unbeliever and you're dead in your sins and, you're, and you're, you're, you're full of sin when you pray that prayer and when you seek God. I don't believe that this applies to all unbelievers, but I do believe that it applies to God-fearers whom God is drawing. This is a fascinating text because it gives us an insight into how God draws people to himself. He responds to those who are sincerely seeking after him. And we see this in Jeremiah 29, 13. This is an incredible promise. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. What an incredible promise. That those who receive some light are responding positively. And by the grace of God, there are those who are genuinely seeking him and they have this promise. 
When you seek Him with all your heart, with all sincerity, you will find God. That's an incredible promise. God, they couldn't find God if He didn't allow Him. That's an incredible promise. Sometimes the question comes up when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Well, what about those who want God that he doesn't save? Impossible. Those who are truly seeking God for who he is, not just what he can get from him. But those who are truly seeking God will find him because God will reveal himself. So Cornelius here was given a little bit of light, right? And because of his uh, responsiveness, God gave him more light. Now watch this in verse 5. He's going to give him some direction. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. God could have sent an angel. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send angels in the New Testament, in the church age to save people. But he will do it in the tribulation. In Revelation 14, 6 through 7, God sends angels out into the midheaven to give the gospel to the entire world. But I want you to notice here how specific the angel was. And again, this is God directing. He specifies which Simon the men were to fetch. They're to seek out Simon named Peter, not Simon the Tanner. This is God directing the salvation of a sinner. And he told Cornelius where Peter was and who he was staying with. So when it comes to God, no sinner is lost. How many times have we said sinners are lost? Not in God's eyes. There's no sinner that's lost. God knows exactly where they are. He knows their exact condition. And he knows exactly who to send, when to send them, to bring a sinner to saving faith. It, it, it grieves me, and you know my passion for this, because I, I care about God's glory. It grieves me that so many Christians believe that salvation is only a mere possibility. It's not just a mere possibility. We see it that way on a human level, we see it as kind of a twist of faith or the gospel is sort of up for grabs, whoever's going to grab it. And that it isn't divinely planned, but just sort of happens by chance. Friends, listen, that could be no further from the truth. And if we deny that, then we're refusing the crystal clear statements in Scripture that God will save who He's going to save. He deserves our worship on that point. To deny him that is to deny him of who he is. And we refuse to do that here. In spite of who disagrees with it, in spite of who can't handle it, the scriptures are very, very clear. God is sovereign. And that's not compartmentalized to certain aspects of life. Oh, all Christians would agree with it, but you start applying it, and some are going to be offended. Now, beyond the theology, there's something really, really comforting about this text. 
Our God, who tracks billions of stars and countless galaxies, knows every single thing about us. He knows us by name. He knows us where we are. He knows exactly what we need. And he even knows the number of hairs on our head. I read an interesting article. I guess, depending on the color of your hair, you have more hair or less hair. And so they calculated all the billions of people on the planet Earth, and then they calculated the number of hairs, and it was some astronomical number. And it wasn't specific enough for me to tell you what exactly it was, but a lot of hair. God knows a lot about us, right? And when we're unbelievers, and we're going to get saved, He knows exactly who to send in order to lead them to Christ. So here's what I think our greatest problem is. And I think our greatest solution to peace in this life is that we tend to underestimate and undervalue God's sovereignty. But friends, if we can get a hold of that, guess what happens? Peace. And, we, and, and it's difficult to apply, isn't it? Because it just doesn't seem right a lot of the time. We'll talk about it more next week, but the timing of this is incredible. So why did God pick Peter? You may remember or may not remember that back in chapter 8, verse 40, Philip ended his missionary journey in Caesarea where Cornelius lives. He could have picked Philip. He could have said, hey, Philip, you're close by. I'm going to send you to bring Cornelius to saving faith. But he didn't. He he chose Peter. Why did he pick Peter? It's not random. What I enjoy about studying the scriptures is I continue to learn. And I, you know, sometimes you think pastors know it all. No, we're not. We're constantly learning as we study scripture. And there are times, and these are times of great celebration, when little pieces of puzzle fall into place. And so we're growing and we're learning as we're studying and the thrill of my life is to teach you what I learned and to show you what scripture says. I've taught Matthew 16 dozens of times, but I never completely grasp what Jesus meant when he spoke to Peter. Speaking to Peter, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here gave Peter keys. Keys. I knew it meant the gospel, but what caught my attention is that Jesus didn't give him a key. He gave him keys, plural. And keys in that day were given to trustworthy uh, stewards. They represented authority. You know, if you have a key to somewhere, you have authority and you have access. And at that time, stewards had access to the king's treasury. And they could dispense their wealth as they saw fit. So what did Jesus imply then by giving Peter plural keys? This is beautiful. You ready for this? One key was given to him to open the door to the gospel to the Jews. That was at Pentecost. The second key was given to him to open the door to the gospel to the Gentiles. And he does both. And so Peter then is about to open the king's treasury to the Gentile world, starting with Cornelius. 
Now look at verse 7. Look, look at the, the response of Cornelius. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants, a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So in true military fashion, Cornelius immediately obeyed. He sent three of his best men to Joppa, and that was some 33 miles away from Caesarea. Now I want you to think for a moment. Let me get your attention. Let me, let's think for just a minute about what's really going on. And I want you to listen very carefully because I don't want any misunderstanding. I don't want any of you to misunderstand. Cornelius was not working for salvation, but neither was he passive. He was actively making personal choices that brought himself closer to his own conversion. Let me say that again. He wasn't working for salvation, but he wasn't passive. He was actively making choices that brought himself closer to his own conversion. Think about it this way. By his obedience, he was unknowingly participating in arranging the circumstances that would give himself access to the gospel. Isn't that amazing? That's sovereignty. At the same time, that's a perfect example of human will working alongside of God's sovereignty. They work hand in hand. God was orchestrating the whole thing, and Cornelius was following the desires of his own heart. And so we have to keep that tension. So sinners actively participate by making choices as they're being drawn to God in obedience. We'll never unfold exactly how that works, but that's exactly what we see. So here's what we've seen so far then. God's sovereignty orchestrates salvation. That's pretty clear. And we see that in the way that God prepared Cornelius. He prepared him to receive the gospel. And next we see that God prepared Peter. It goes all the way through verse 20. We're not going to get that far this morning. So here's what I want you to see. God works at both ends. He prepares the receiver for the gospel, and he prepares the messenger as well. Look at verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Luke now moves us forward to the next day. It was the sixth hour, which is noon, and Peter goes up on the roof to pray. Noon was the time of prayer for the Jewish people. Houses in that day were flat. The, the roofs were flat. If you've ever seen um, Santa Claus with, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, Tim Allen. Have you seen that movie? You know how the reindeer lie on the flat roofs? It was always weird to me, but that's how they were in, in the Jewish culture. And it was a place where they could go to socialize. It was a place that was cool in the evenings. And it certainly was a great place to go pray. Peter would have had a spectacular view as he looked out over the Mediterranean Sea. And he would have experienced the cool ocean breeze, a perfect place to pray and to be alone with the Lord. Do you have one of those places? Mine's on my deck, but it's kind of shut down this time of year. That's where I enjoy being. Now, remember this, 
It's 12 o'clock noon. It's lunchtime. This is so cool. Watch this. Verse 10. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. It was lunchtime. Peter's stomach started growling. He became hungry. The Greek would suggest that he was famished. The grammar tells us that his hunger kept him thinking about food over and over and over again. Have you ever tried dieting? Right? You understand that it can consume your thinking. I really enjoy watching the Food Channel. You guys watch the Food Channel at all? I can't cook anything, but I enjoy it. And they were making donuts. Right? And so this time of year, they have a, a, a it's a, some sort of thing where they're all making donuts and they, somebody wins the prize, right? $10,000 prize. Well, I got donuts stuck in my mind. So I fought it for a while. And then I went down to get a donut, right? And I was thinking about this passage, how it can kind of consume you. So Peter here is consumed with hunger. And so why does God, through the Holy Spirit, give us the details about his hunger and that lunch wasn't ready? Why does he give us that detail here? Well, for one thing, it shows that God is a God of infinite and finite detail. Friends, listen. He is active in our lives in the smallest, seemingly mundane details of life. And so in this case, God is going to use Peter's hunger and the delay of the meal to prepare him for the vision that he's about to receive. He's hungry and he's going to get a vision regarding food. Now watch this. Verse 11, and he saw the sky opened up in an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and, and, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. What a strange vision. Something that looked like a great big huge bed sheet comes floating down from heaven, and there's all kinds of animals on it. I want you to notice here that they're divided into three groups. There were four-footed animals. That's group number one. There were crawling creatures, group number two. And the third group were birds. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because these are the same categories of animals that we find in the creation account in Genesis 1.30. They were four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and birds. They're the same three categories that we see in the account of Noah in Genesis 6.20. They're also found in Romans 1.23 where a man exchanges, where men exchange God's glory to worship creatures. Now, why is this important? So when we look at that category across Scripture, it tells us something profound here. All three grouping of animals represents the entire animal world. Keep that in mind. They symbolize the totality of clean and unclean animals that exist on the earth. Remember this as we walk through the rest of this text. So why would God produce a vision like this? And what's the meaning of it? Well, first of all, we have to understand the Mosaic Law. According to the law of Moses, Jews were forbidden to eat unclean animals. 
Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14 gives us all the absolutes of Israel's diet. In a nutshell, they could only eat animals that God determined to be clean, and they were forbidden to eat the animals that God had determined were unclean. So why did God give the Jews such restrictions? You know what's interesting that I found very interesting? The scriptures don't ever explicitly say. They don't tell us exactly why God determined to give the Jews these regulations regarding food. But Jewish scholars suggest there are two reasons. Some believe it was for health reasons. Certain animals, they say, were more susceptible to carrying disease. There may be some truth in that. But many of the regulations have no connection to health. For example, the best of our modern scientific knowledge, we know that there's no no reason why a rabbit, which was non-kosher, is any less healthy than a cow or a goat, both being kosher. So when we really take a look at all the details of the food and the animals, it really doesn't support the idea that they were regulations for health. It's more assumed than proven. Okay? So we really don't know. It's never really stated. But they had a much greater and more obvious purpose. The dietary laws were given to Israel for spiritual reasons. Now watch this. They were given to the Jews because they set the Jews apart as God's chosen people. And the idea is that God's people are to be different. We've talked about music recently. Our music should be different in here than what we hear in the world. What we do and how we act and how we respond and and how we worship is to be different than the world. So God gave them the dietary restrictions to say, hey, you're different than the rest of the world. Secondly, though, they pictured God's call on their life to be pure and holy in an unclean world. That's the main purpose. So the food restrictions then help the Israelites learn between good and evil, what's pure and defiled, what's sacred and profane. So in summary, then, the dietary restrictions epitomized Israel's uniqueness as God's chosen people, and his expectations that they should be holy. So what Peter is about to hear, though, is scandalous. Watch this. Look at 13. And a voice came to him. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. That was hard for Peter to swallow, right? Pun intended. You see, Peter grew up abstaining from all the unclean animals, but now God is commanding him to eat them, and it was absolutely shocking to him. God works in the details of life, and so this morning as I was studying this exact passage on these food laws, I happened to look up at the TV, and I usually have the news going in the background that's muted, and I happened to see a little segment on PETA, That stands for People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. And so they did a picture, they sent this out at Thanksgiving, picturing turkeys sitting around a human on a platter, and the idea was that turkeys would never do that to us. 
A perfect timing, right? I'm not kidding you. As I was studying this passage, I looked up and I thought, God, you are so good for giving me an example of PETA. God and PETA are at odds. God gave animals for food and we are to kill them and we are to eat them. Now, all you hunters can relax. You're in God's will. And there's a, there's a powerful movement against killing animals and eating them. God gave us animals to eat. He just commanded Peter, kill them and eat them. Now, I prefer to see him wrapped at Kroger. <laughs> All right? My son and, and some of the others are doing some hunting, and I told him, I said, I, I, I know there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it's just weird to kill an animal to eat it. We're so American, aren't we? But, but hunting is certainly biblical, guys. And this whole idea is that we're hurting animals and we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't kill them and eat them is absolutely wrong. That's worship in creation and not the creator. Now watch this. We're, we're coming to the end of this. Watch, watch how this unfolds. Peter's response really shouldn't surprise us knowing Peter, verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean or unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up to the sky. So Peter had heard, basically, the vision came down. I don't think it came down three times. Then it came down, and he heard the command and the explanation three different times, and Peter refused to obey. He's arguing with God. An Orthodox Jew just couldn't simply get over his past. Peter reminds us how difficult it is sometimes to change what we've been raised with, even though God's word may say, uh, say something different. So what's the point of the vision? It's twofold. First of all, it signaled the passing of the Jewish age and the establishment of the church age. We have a transition. We call it dispensations where it went from focused on Israel to focus on the church with a focus on evangelizing the Jews. After the cross, then, what we see is the Jewish food laws expired. So we have no such restrictions today. Peter was told what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Today, there are no unclean animals. Do you see that? Possums, maybe? <laughs> you know, but, but as far as being unclean, there is no such thing today. Now, friends, so many Christians see these verses relating only to, vo- to food. And they, they go back to the Old Testament and they say, well, here's the clean foods and the unclean, fo- unclean cl- foods. But if we see this passage as primarily about food, we miss the whole point. The gospel is going forward. And Peter had to get over his prejudice. This vision is dealing with that, those two elements. It's really not about food. Peter's vision has a broader spiritual meaning that's related to the church. So this is what God was teaching Peter. The clean and unclean animals symbolized all humanity. 
Remember I told you to remember that those three categories of animals represented every single animal on work. The spiritual analogy is that those animals represent every single person on earth. And the context is about Jewish bigotry and the advancement of the gospel. So Peter then was to understand that the animals represented all the peoples of the earth. That's the purpose of this text. It's not really about food. And by the way, if there were clean and unclean animals, and God said every single one of them are clean, what changed about the animals? Nothing. Nothing changed. Because God had a different purpose than to say, this one is not healthy, and this one is healthy to eat. Because that didn't change. So what did God mean then by the clean animals? What did it represent? It pictured the Jews. The Jews thought they were the only ones on earth that were clean. And everybody else was unclean. Well, what about the unclean animals? They spoke of the Gentiles. So what did this vision really mean to Peter and to us? The entire vision taught that God was bringing both groups together to form the church. That's the purpose of this vision. It's not about food, ultimately. The clean and the unclean for Israel was spiritual, not physical. And so what he's teaching Peter and growing Peter to understand is, hey, Peter, The gospel is for everybody, not just you Jews. And we see this theme all the way through Acts. So God was showing Peter that the removal of the Jewish dietary laws meant that the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles was being removed. How? By the cross. Matthew read this at the beginning of our service, and I just want to finish with this. This is the Apostle Paul, the premier Jew, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. And this is what he came to understand about the gospel. In verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Here's what he's saying. The Jews considered you unclean. The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean because they weren't circumcised. And notice, that's just an issue of the flesh, done by hands. And verse 12, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. What he's saying here is that you Gentiles before Christ didn't have the promises the Jews had. And as I've said before, the church has not replaced Israel. What he's saying here is that you're going to participate in God's promises to the Jewish people. And before Christ, you couldn't do that. We were outsiders. We were alien. Thank you, Lord. Now look at verse 13. We have a but God moment. But now, in Christ Jesus... 
You who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All the racism is taken care of by the blood of Jesus, not human laws. Human laws are okay, they're good, they suppress the evil, they bring a certain amount of justice. Friends, we will, we will never get rid of racism. We will never get rid of bigotry unless we have a work of grace in our hearts. Amen. And the world cannot figure this out. We have more hatred in this country than we've ever had. And I don't care how much education or seminars or equity training there is. There is no fixing the human heart of hatred towards other people. The gospel. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is exactly what Peter was learning. Because of the cross, we Gentiles are no longer aliens and strangers to God's promises and covenants that he made to the Jews. We're grafted into those promises. Thank, thank the Lord. When he talks about the dividing, this is the last point, when he talks about the dividing wall or the barrier of the dividing wall being broken down, here's what he's describing. In the temple, Gentiles could only go so far into the temple. They couldn't get to the holy place. So there were Gentiles on the outside, then closer were the Jews. Gentiles were restricted. There was a no trespassing sign to Gentiles on that wall. They could not get to the most holy place. The cross of Christ ripped that sign down and ripped that wall down so that we as Gentiles have access to God. Thank you, Jesus. Merry Christmas. Right? What a beautiful lesson Peter learned. That barrier's gone. God has brought the Jews and the Gentiles together. And someday they will become the focus again. Just like marriage, the husband and wife don't lose their identity, but they're considered one. God's got a promise to them, and he must fulfill that or we are lost. The cross changed it all. What a beautiful vision. The removing of those dietary restrictions was the removal of Israel's separateness. It wasn't about food, ultimately. It has a spiritual meaning. By the way, all of us are unclean. The Jews were unclean, even though they thought they were clean. And the only way, my friends, to get cleansed is through the blood of Christ. That is a Christmas present. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the meaning of your word, Lord. I pray today that we've all grown in our understanding of your plan. Lord, we pray that we have an understanding of what the food laws meant, what they didn't mean, and those spiritual realities still apply today.
We are to be a separate people. And we are called to a life of holiness and cleanliness. And we thank you for the death of your son that gives us those realities. I pray for anybody here today, Father, that don't have a relationship with your son. Would you lift the scales? Would you show them the glory of Christ in the gospel? Guide us where we need to be. Give us a boldness and a courage to speak up when we should speak up so that people will hear the gospel. And I pray this Christmas, the gospel is more cherished than ever before. In Christ's name we pray, amen.